You know, one of the things that unites us in humanity, isn't that great to start talking about today instead of the things that divide us necessarily, to start talking about something that unites us? Well, I believe one of those things is a search for meaning and purpose in life. It goes across every possible known diversity that we can think of. It goes across generations and even eras of time. Humanity has always been searching for meaning and purpose. What is life's ultimate meaning, right? And I know that's a, one of those grand questions about life. And I know many of us were sitting here in a church service or listening online, so the obvious church answer to that is God. We find meaning and purpose in life when we discover who God is and we find our purpose in him. And when we begin to live that, now we're, meet, we're living with life's purpose that we were designed for. And if you answer that, well, you're, you'd be right. It's not just the church answer, it's the real answer. I just kind of gave away the ending of the sermon there, but don't leave yet, because we've got a long ways to go today. Life's true purpose and meaning is found when we discover God and when we begin to live according to his plan and purpose for our life. For many of us in the church, that serves as our, the foundation of our belief system. But you see, I don't want to just talk about a belief system today. I want to talk about how that gets lived out in our lives. I'm interested less in the belief system than I am how we live that out in practice. Not just the belief, but we're talking about practice today. So I believe that there's a gap that gets formed when what we believe fails to line up with how we live. And the bigger that gap, the more issues that we have that we need to close that gap and we need to live life in harmony with who God made us to be. That's a very difficult journey. It's a lot easier said than done. Because you see, there are so many parts of our lives, the tyranny of the urgent, if you will, comes to take us away from the worship of the one true God what we're designed to do, created to be. What are the things that come to take us away from worship of God? It's those things in life which bring us joy and passion and focus that take us away from God. And these things aren't inherently evil, but when they become more important than the worship of the one true God, by definition, we're talking about idolatry. One of the foundational principles that you need to hear from me right at the outset is that the worship of the one true God extends beyond 90 minutes on a Sunday morning. The worship of the one true God should define who we are, not anything else in this world. So let's talk for a moment about some of those things that will take us away from the worship of the one true God because they take greater prominence in our lives. Just spend a week with someone and watch how they live and you'll see what they actually worship, right? There are people that worship work. Workaholism is a real thing. That might sound like a foreign concept to many of us, but for others, the pursuit of your career, your personal goals wrapped up in who you are, your identity, and your work becomes that which drives you and brings you passion. Not, not the belief system. It's what gets lived out in life. For others of us, it is the pursuit of material wealth and money and possessions. This always comes up when we talk about idolatry in a message, but there's a reason for that. There's a depth behind that. There's a reality that exists where the worship 
of status, the worship of wealth crowds in and takes that place reserved for only God. We need the bigger and better paying jobs so that we can get the bigger and better house, so that we can get the bigger and better car, so that we can have the bigger and better financial portfolio and take bigger and better vacations. Only five-star resorts will do. The love and the pursuit of money all too often, just by the way we live our lives and practice, becomes that which we worship, even more than God himself. How about entertainment? Did you know that entertainment could be that which we worship? Oh, we'd never call it that. We would never refer to it as worship. But just think of the way in which our culture has been geared for entertainment purposes. Television and movies and music and sports and so many other aspects of what it means for us to be entertained with an ever-shrinking attention span. We live to be entertained. It used to be that you were a couch potato if you came home from school or work and crashed on the couch for a few hours and just clicked through the television. Today's day and age dwarfs that. We not only have television, but we have the world of the internet. And those two things have kind of combined for 24-7 entertainment value. TVs are no longer just televisions. They're computers and tablets and personal devices. They go with us everywhere. The need to be entertained can be all-consuming. We no longer just watch television. We stream shows and we binge watch our favorite shows. And there's a constant need for that. Music is everywhere. Hopefully not here at church right now. Gaming. Games used to be relegated to arcades and maybe your, your living room if you have a gaming system. But now games are everywhere. They're on televisions and computers and tablets and personal devices. We can inadvertently worship the value of being entertained. Oh, the principle of God, I find my meaning in life's purpose in God, that's still there. That doesn't leave us. <laughs> that's our belief system. But you see that gap forms with practice, how we live. I can go on and on with examples of the way in which the tyranny of the urgent and those things that take us away from God take over our lives. They dominate our time. This is also, in a way, the story of ancient Israel. Today, we're going to talk a lot about ancient Israel, and we're going to go to 1 Kings chapter 18 as an example here of Israel falling away from worship of the true God. Oh, they had their belief system intact? Kind of. We'll get there. But the story of ancient Israel is that no matter how many times God showed miraculous signs and wonders and demonstrations of who he is, Israel would follow after God and then fall away. For every time that God parted the Red Sea to deliver them, they would fall away from that. Every time that the walls of Jericho came down in a dramatic showing of God's powers, they took over into the promised land they would continually fall away. Kings came and went. Corrupt kings came and went. Israel kept following their own path instead of the path that God laid out for them. So in 1 Kings chapter 18, we're going to start at verse 16. And I just want to set this scene for you really quick because there's a lot happening here. It's somewhere around the year 850 BC, and the king of Israel is Ahab. Ahab was one of the most corrupt kings Israel ever had. 
And he married Jezebel, a Phoenician princess. And Jezebel brought with her to this marriage and brought with her in leadership in Israel devotion to polytheism, the worship of many gods instead of the one true God. So over time, during Ahab's reign over Israel, between him and Jezebel, they systematically began to eliminate the worship of Yahweh. They systematically tore down temples and altars and symbols, and they kicked out so many of the prophets of God, and they replaced them with other temples, worship of other gods. This happened over his reign, and Jezebel was there giving approval to all of it. But there was also one prophet of God named Elijah, and Elijah is one of the more famous prophets that you read about in the Old Testament. And Elijah, not going on his own power or strength, but called by God himself, had had enough. He had seen what was going on, and he had had enough, and God spoke through him to get an audience with King Ahab. So we're going to pick the story up at verse 16. Obadiah was someone who was basically the chief of staff in Ahab's court. Read this. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, is that you, you troubler of Israel? I've not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. The Baals were false gods. They were, the, Baal takes on many different forms in the Bible and in ancient uh, Israel and in ancient cultures. The Baals were Canaanite gods that had their roots in the demonic realm. And it sounds so counterintuitive to think that the chosen people of God in the Old Testament, Israel, could be swayed so greatly in such a short amount of time to follow after the Baals. Asherah was a goddess as well. Again, they brought in polytheism and they had all these prophets of Baal and Asherah. So Elijah said, okay, we're going to have a battle of the gods. You get all your prophets. Meet me on Mount Carmel. And we're going to see who, whose god is real. Keep reading in verse 20. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. And the people said nothing. I want to I explain this to you that what was going on here was you had the prophets of Baal understanding that they still loved their national identity in Israel. They still vocally said, oh yeah, of course, the God of Israel, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that's who we follow. But in practice, they followed many gods. In fact, they followed no God, because they were all false gods. So Elijah, at the beginning of this encounter that we see on Mount Carmel, calls them out on that, and he said, if God is God, follow him. But look at the way you're living your lives. If Baal is God, follow him instead. And the people were convicted by that because they knew that that gap existed between what they knew they should believe and what they practiced in their lives. And they had no response, none, to Elijah. 
keep reading. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us, and let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves, and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but do not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. All right, see, just you're putting yourself into the story. You're imagining that this scene is unfolding, and Elijah is setting up what I'm affectionately calling the battle of the gods. And he sets the terms, and everyone understands, and they agree to it. What he's obviously trying to do is a dramatic representation of God's power. He's going to call on the name of the Lord, but he's going to let the prophets of Baal have their time first. He defers to them. Go ahead. You guys have your fun. If you feel like Baal is God and he is real, then I'm going to defer to you. Go ahead and set up your altar, get the bull ready, and let's see what happens. Verse 25, then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given to them, and they prepared it. They called on the name of Baal, get this, from morning till noon. That's important. Baal, answer us, they shouted. There was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. So they didn't give it 20 minutes or 30 minutes or even an hour. From morning until noon, they cried out and shouted out to Baal, this false god. Show who you are. We are your followers. And just imagine the sound of 450 of them shouting in unison from breakfast until lunch. That must have been some scene. Now, this is where, in the story, this is the part that I truly love just from a, a humorous standpoint. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he's deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. <laughs> so they shouted louder. Then they slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. Did you catch that? The evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. So now we've gone through breakfast, lunch, and dinner. We've, we've got through the evening. The entire day has passed by, and these prophets of Baal have had no success because obviously he hasn't shown up yet. And they took it to another level. Not only did they shout louder, but they started slashing themselves. So you have a Canaanite false god deity that has its roots in the demonic world. This is what they were worshiping. And Elijah... I love this. I'm just, I just visualized Elijah. He must have sat there. Just picture him in a lawn chair, if you will, not a stool, 
a lawn chair, and he's sitting back, and he's mocking them a little bit, in a godly way, of course, and he's saying, just shout louder. Maybe he's sleeping. Wake him up a little bit. And he's just watching this scene unfold because the battle of gods is already over. They just don't know it yet. So let's keep reading. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. There's a little bit of history here. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, your name shall be Israel. Going back to his history. With these stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two sea of seed. In other words, that's about uh, 18 to 20 quarts. That's a pretty big volume. He arranged the wood. He cut the bull into pieces and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time. He ordered, and they did it the third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. So as the scene unfolds, what Elijah is doing here is he's leaving no doubt. He's saying, you're not going to be able to accuse me of rigging anything. When he had them fill four large jars of water, we're not talking a gallon of water. We're talking multiple gallons. These are large jars. Just visualize the people 12 times, 12 of these. Just dousing this altar, the bull, the wood, the stone, the soil, the trench was filled with water, just so there's no doubt of what was about to happen. Elijah's faith was strong. He already knew what was going to happen. At the time of the sacrifice, we continue, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed. Just listen to this prayer. Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord. Answer me. So these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil and also licked up the water in the trench. And when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate, and they cried, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Now this dramatic story ended the battle of the gods. God showed up, he consumed that altar. Elijah prayed, and he prayed a bold prayer so that everyone knew not only was his God's doing But his motivation was not for himself. That's an important part of this story. Elijah was not doing this to grandstand or to say, hey, look at what I've just done. He was doing this to show God's power and so that the people would then turn back to him. This demonstration of God's power proves a lot. And it's more than just a history lesson for us. I want to share with you just a few points that I believe why this scripture has so much relevance to us. I want you to allow the scripture to speak to you for just a moment because this is more than just a history lesson. The first, there, there are five points I want you to see, and the first one is this, that the Baals are alive and well today. Oh, we don't call them that. 
We don't even call them idols. But they're alive and well today. We all have our belief system. Life's purpose and meaning is found when I worship the one true God and I find my purpose in him and I begin to live as I believe. But the bales are also here. And this gap exists between what we believe and who we are and what we actually worship. We've allowed false gods to enter into our lives, into our families, into our churches, into our nation, into our world, and take us away, steer us away from the worship of the true God. Just look here at verse 21. Elijah went before the people and he said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. That same question is extended to each and every one of us. I could tell you stories today of pastors who've left ministry that I know. They've left ministry only because they were seeking more money. They were seeking a better lifestyle that suited them better. God had called them to a very specific work, and yet they've left and abandoned that work of ministry to pursue other gods. I could tell you stories of people that I know, people that I've counseled in this congregation that have become so consumed with addictions that addictions have become that God for them, and they've replaced the worship of the one true God for that next weekend, that next buzz, that next high. I can tell you stories of people that I've counseled that have abandoned worship of the true God to go into broken relationship after broken relationship after broken relationship. And they know it's unhealthy and they know it's destructive to their life. And yet they continue to do it. Because there's a gap between what they know life's purpose and meaning is and how they live their lives. The Baals are alive and well today. The gods of workaholism and financial gain and entertainment and addictions and destructive relationships and material wealth and so much more. Oh, there's so many things that vie for our attention and our allegiance and our devotion And I feel that, and I know you do too. The world that we live in is infinitely complex. And the more things that we add to it, the more luxuries that we add to our life and technology and otherwise, it feels like the more difficult and more crowded and all-consuming life becomes. And what gets marginalized all too often, just in my world, is God. Not by my principles or my belief system, mind you, but by the way that I live my life. Oh, the bales are alive and well today. And I need us to hear that. But there's more. The second thing I want you to see is that there is only one true God. Verse 24 of this passage from 1 Kings. Then you call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. And you see, there was no question, there was no doubt in Elijah's mind what was gonna happen. The battle of the gods was over even before it started because of this truth. There's one true God. And what I want you to hear, and you can 
Occasionally I do this. You can lean in for this part. Lean in. He's real. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God that has revealed himself through scripture is real. Not just in the pages of a book. Not just in a systematic theology that makes sense to us in our minds. As we just studied from Ecclesiastes, he's not a tame lion, is he? He's real. The God that we read about, the God that we sing to, the God that we pray to is actually real. He is a holy, holy, holy God. And we enter into his presence every time we say those two faithful words, dear God. We enter into his presence every time we cry out to him in need. And I don't want us to lose the wonder of that. Because I think all too often, especially in the church world, we sanitize ourselves to that. We just assume, of course, God is real. Of course, my belief system holds true. But we lose the wonder, the mystery, the majesty, the miracle of this God who created the cosmos and yet created little old me. Who loves the world so much that he gave his one and only son, but yet also loves me enough to reach into my life and change me. Don't ever forget that there's only one God worthy of your worship. So just as real as the Baals may be today, and they take different forms in our culture, of course, the battle of the gods rages inside every one of us, and the one true God speaks out to you and to me and calls us to himself. Don't ever lose sight of the wonder of that. Third, fire from heaven still appears in our world today. I think so, so many times when you read a text like this from 1 Kings 18 and you, you see the account of Elijah and Mount Carmel, we marvel at that. And we wonder, why doesn't that stuff happen to me? Why doesn't that stuff happen in our world today? When we turn on the news, why don't we hear accounts of this in the news stories? I want to speak to that real quick. First, the God of miracles is still very much alive and active today. We just don't necessarily hear about it. It doesn't make it to the evening news. But if you open your eyes and you look for it, he's there. The God who miraculously healed so many in the pages of the Bible still does so today. I have family members that have been healed of dramatic illnesses and you read testimonies of people that the reason they came to faith is because God did a miraculous healing that they witnessed and they saw, oh, the God of miracles is alive today. I could read you accounts of stories of people and testimonies, people much like Lazarus in our world today have literally been raised from the dead. The God of miracles is still alive and active. In the pages of the Bible, you read stories and testimonies of people that have had these dramatic releases from demons. Oh, that still happens today. Trust me on that one. How about this one? The very existence of God's church. The church was born 
from fire coming down from heaven. In Acts chapter 2, we read about this. A little bit, you see that, that scene where tongues of fire separate. The disciples are in that upper room, and tongues of fire separate and fall on them, and they start speaking in tongues, and dramatic things happen. And the church is born, and 3,000 people come to faith in Christ in that moment. And yet 2,000 years later, the church of Jesus Christ still marches on. That in and of itself is an evidence that the God of miracles still is alive and active today. But what about us? Why doesn't that happen to us? I want to challenge you to open your eyes a little bit more to the miracles of God all around us, these dramatic showings of God's power. But I have something else that I want to share with you. If you're looking for those things, you're looking for the wrong thing. Don't look for God to show himself and prove himself as fire comes down from heaven and consumes an altar in the battle of the gods. Because I have good news for you today. Something, number four, something far more powerful than fire from heaven has come to point every single person to God. What could be more dramatic than what we read about in 1 Kings 18? Well, you see, the prophet, this happened somewhere around the year 850 BC, but just a little ways after that, say in the 700s, the prophet Isaiah came around. And in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, we read this, that he says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Hang on to that for a moment. The prophets of old, it wasn't just Isaiah, it was people before him and after him, spoke to this truth that there was going to be coming something that would change all of human history more powerful than fire from heaven. So fast forward 700 more years to the birth of Christ. Today, by the way, is the first Sunday of Advent, and that is such a special moment in the life of the church as we anticipate Advent is that season of anticipation, of celebration of Christ's birth. So let's go to Matthew chapter 1. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. Going back to Isaiah. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. The birth of Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of that prophecy from hundreds of years previous to that. And why is that important? Why is that significant? Because something far more powerful from heaven came to this earth, and it is God's very presence himself, God in the flesh, came to change humanity. Talk about a dramatic showing of God's power. Talk about one that is once and for all. This is what we celebrate in the Advent season as we anticipate Christ's birth. And there's that name, that name above all names, Jesus, right? But it it says in this scripture, you call him Emmanuel, that's another name for Christ. And Emmanuel, simply put, means God with us. That's what Emmanuel is, God with us. So here, let me me unpack this for you. Let me explain this to you a little bit more. We, We keep looking for these dramatic signs of God's power, and yet, He gave us his his very self. 
and Emmanuel, God with us, was not just one time for one generation of people that were lucky enough to live the coming of the Messiah. Emmanuel, God with us, is for all people, for all times, for all generations. No matter what struggles you face in this world, no matter what forces are there to pull you away from the worship of the true God, God is with you if you would just embrace him, if you would just turn your life to him. Something far more powerful from heaven came in the person of Jesus Christ. God himself came to live a perfect life, a sinless life. And even more than that, if that wasn't enough, he came to teach us a revolutionary new way to live that fulfilled everything from the old covenant was fulfilled in one person of Christ and in the teachings that revolutionized humanity. And you can read about it in the Bible, in the Gospels. And you can read about the commentary and what happened after that and the rest of the New Testament. Not only did Jesus come to live a perfect, sinless life, not only did he teach a revolutionary new way to live through the gospel, but he himself, God himself, became that sacrifice. The Bible says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So God himself became the sacrifice to win our freedom, to take us in our own brokenness, in our own idolatry, and those things that pull us away from the worship of the true God, he died for that, to bring us closer to God, to bring us in perfect relationship with God, to give us a new spirit, the brokenness that exists in every single one of us that seeks after meaning and purpose and fulfillment in life with everything else other than God himself. That brokenness has been wiped clean by the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And what's more, after the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, three days later, he was raised to life again. So we worship a living God. Just think about that. We don't worship a figure from history that made an impact some 2,000 years ago that we can read about in a book. We worship a living God that has given us a new spirit that has changed the course of humanity, but has also reached into our lives and changed the direction and the course and the meaning and the purpose of our life. Talk about fire from heaven. Finally, I'll close with this point. God calls each of us to live a, prof a life of profound purpose as those who have been miraculously changed by God's grace. You see, part of the reason that we keep searching and searching for purpose and meaning in life and other things is because we live as those who have no hope. It's part of the human condition. Again, it's part of that universal thing that binds humanity together. is brokenness and sin. So the bales come in. We build systems of religion. We don't call them multiple gods, but that is what we worship. Friends, the power of the gospel is that Jesus Christ has come to eliminate that, to give us a hope that we can never gain otherwise, a living hope. The power of the gospel is that no longer do we have to follow God for a little bit of time and then get distracted and get pulled away by other false gods only to get redirected again. That's a story of religion. That's not the life that God calls us to. 
the power of the gospel is that your very spirit can be changed and replaced by the God of grace. This is the life that he calls you to. It takes belief in Christ away from a belief system and unites it with practice, not by any strength of our own, but by the power of God at work within an individual. This is the power of the gospel. This is why Advent is such a big deal. This is why Emmanuel is more than just a name. It is a reality for those of us who live as the redeemed. So what am I trying to say today? How am I trying to challenge you today? For many of us, we have sanitized the Christmas story into the manger scene. And I want to take us away from that safe version of Advent this year. And I want us to go back to the wonder and the majesty of the holy, holy God breaking into human history, changing it. View this Advent season differently than you've ever viewed it before. What am I challenging you to? I'm challenging you because so many of us have sanitized God himself meaning and purpose in life, we've sanitized it into a belief system. We've compartmentalized it in our lives. I can punch my card in at church, I can punch out, I can go about the rest of my week and have all my other life priorities. And we tuck God away and relegate him to 90 minutes on a Sunday or maybe even 30 minutes every morning with coffee or maybe even, if you're going crazy, Bible study or small group. I want to challenge us today to live bold lives of faith. That the belief of God would be united with the practice of how we live our lives. And when that happens in the life of an individual, that individual ceases to exist as they once did. They are fundamentally changed. You still go to work. Work in itself is not evil. It's not bad. <laughs> you still earn money. Money is not evil inherently. You still build your financial portfolio. All of these things are important. You still follow your, your sports teams with passion. I mean, just think about it. I know what it feels like to, when your team wins the World Series and there's that exuberance and joy that comes from that. That's not a bad thing. But, oh, wait a minute. I remembered. We're in New York. You guys haven't had that in a while. Don't worry. You get back there. All my Yankees friends. You know who you are. Some of the things that we look to to give us pleasure and meaning in life, they're not evil things. They're good things given to us by God. My challenge to you is put them in their proper perspective and their proper place. My goodness, when you think and you understand and you know who God really is and his purpose for you and how he has changed your life and how he has given you his very presence how can you ever live the same again? How can you ever prioritize other things to take prominence and priority and passion away from the worship of God every day of your life? There's a life that is waiting to be lived because God's presence is with us. Emmanuel is just as real and true now as it was 2,000 years ago. When we come to something like the Lord's table, and we receive the bread and the cup, what we are proclaiming together 
is that God's presence has been realized in my life and I am fundamentally different because he has saved me. It's not just a ritual to be performed in a church service. It's a life that's waiting to be lived. Pray with me. Father, thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for your presence realized in our lives, that you are the one true God that calls us to such such a life that will never be the same. But Lord, we recognize that there are so many other things vying for our attention and our allegiance, and yes, Lord, our worship. Father, just as you expelled the bales all those thousands of years ago, I pray that you would do that in each of our individual lives, that we would lose the focus of those other things that distract us from worship of you. Thank you that you are the only one worthy of our worship, and we give it to you. Because you have given your very self to us, we give our very selves to you. Thank you for being our Father and for freeing us from sin. In Jesus' name, amen.